Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, May 24th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So uh, the outrage of the day, the week, the month is um, this astonishing event at Princeton University where the highly respected uh, philosophy professor, uh, tenured professor Joshua Katz has been fired, despite the fact that tenure rules almost make this impossible, has been fired supposedly for uh, trying to compel a student with whom he had had a consensual relationship almost two decades ago uh, in the initial efforts to investigate this relationship to not to release information about it to the university. This is a relationship for which Katz has already been punished. He was actually suspended for a year without pay Uh, Even though it was not any kind of a criminal violation, she was uh, in her majority, but it was some kind of violation of Princeton's own rules. And so he took his punishment and served out his sentence and lost a year's salary. Um, And then in 2020, he he objected in a piece in Quillette to anti-racism efforts in the wake of George Floyd's killing uh became the most controversial person on the princeton campus uh then praised himself in another piece uh by saying i I spoke up and i survived and other people you know in on uh, you know in universities need to speak up because they can't stop us if we're honest and then princeton basically went on this clearly went on this uh witch hunt uh, trying to find any and every piece of information they could use to nail him to the wall and get him out of out of the university, um, and somehow got the student in question, who is now, by the way, you know, closing on forty years old, to supply them with some emails in which he said, "You don't have to tell anybody about this if you don't want to," or something like that. That was seen to be an uh, effort to pressure her that that hadn't been known to the administration before. Uh, any 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 idea that this was done for any reason other than to punish him for his speech uh, is this is a fascinating issue for me because on the one hand, what do we care? I'll tell you exactly why we no, care. what do we care? What I mean by this is, Universities stink. The, the higher education system in the United States is now corrupted garbage, even though I have a daughter who's about to, I'm about to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars spending my daughter, sending my daughter through this process. But we all understand 40 years of corruption, 40 years of ideological uh, narrowing, 40 years of hostility to, to, to non-conventional or unconventional thinkers. And this, uh, in, in, you know, grade inflation, uh, alumni hijinks, massive capital spending on buildings that are meaningless and useless. Um, it's a terrible system. It's a terrible thing. I'm very sorry for Joshua Katz and people who have to live in it, but we need to move beyond it. Um, you know, 
And on the other hand, this is totalitarianism. This is a show trial. This is literally, a, this was literally a show trial. He was not allowed to present evidence. He was simply fired. The university told, told the public that he was fired before it told him. That he well, was apparently fired. that actually the email went to a wrong email address that the timestamps suggest that it went out at the same time. They just hadn't seen it at the time that they were getting quotes for these pieces. All the pieces, by the way, that I'm talking about are the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the papers of record who are engaged in a conspiracy, a cover up because they do not tell you the context that resulted in this firing. The only person I've seen do real good reporting on this is Aaron Sibirian at the Washington Free Beacon, who notes that Christopher Eisgruber, the university president who recommended this, that this indiscretion with this particular student, by the way, these emails that surfaced subsequently say that uh, she shouldn't seek mental health counseling because that would just divulge, divulge the issues here. Whereas the, his attorney says that those emails aren't, aren't nearly as inflammatory as they're being presented. We haven't read them. We don't know what they say. But Ice Gruber recommended that Katz lose his uh, tenure in 2020 because he had exercised his free speech, he had not exercised his free speech responsibly. The university created websites that listed this professor as a racist, deemed him a racist on its websites. There was a campaign, a concerted effort to punish this guy for his speech that they didn't like. And they found a mechanism to do it. And if this was an honest effort to f seek some sort of a reconcile, a re uh, uh, to reckon with the indiscretion and the ethical um, bounds that he flirted with, you know, violating, then they would have referenced all this because it was immaterial, right? It's just his side of the story and his side of the story is outweighed by the other evidence, but it's not. His side of the story is the right side of the story. And the reason why you don't know it and it's not being reported is because they can't contextualize it properly without letting you in on the dirty little secret here. There's there is a kind of this this story is really fascinating because it also brings together a couple of longstanding uh, cultural things that have been going on in a sort of perfect storm. One is the attack. He's a classics professor. The classics prof uh, departments are under siege on college campuses right now, right? They're considered the worst of the sort of, you know, uh, colonialist, imperialist, white man studies. You know, they're under attack. The, the people who are in them are themselves. There's some revolutionary classics professors trying to, you know, decolonize classics. So it is a field that already is is has been scrutinized by the sort of anti-racist brigade as, as being suspect. So that's one thing. He comes from that arena. The other thing is that they use something, they use Title IX to, to, to pursue this sort of double jeopardy against him, right? He'd already been investigated, he'd already been punished, as John said. What they, what, the, what they did is turn it over to this Title IX bureaucracy on campus and say, go at him again. See if you can find harassment versus something else. Like, see if you can start using the, the bureaucratic power that we know we have on campus through Title IX offices to get him again. And look, I, I've seen the Ashley Judd movie. There's no double jeopardy, except Title IX bureaucracy has no, no uh, bar against double jeopardy. So they went after him again and they got these students to say the very fact that he'd had a previous relationship that was totally consensual, that he'd been punished for it, makes him a danger to students now. We know this about him, so now he can't be in a classroom because he's still a danger to the rest of us. You cannot do that unless you have a Kafka-esque Title IX bureaucracy in place that knows exactly how to go after someone who's been declared an enemy of the university. What were his offenses that led the university president to say that he should be stripped of tenure because of his speech? That was through that was two years ago. Not, 2020. Not, right. Not this not this indiscretion yeah. with a student that is the pretext for his dismissal. 
the actual stuff that led to him being the subject of discipline in the in the minds of these uh, of the non-faculty administrators. He said that the in, the institution was not a racist institution. Um, that was the prevailing wisdom in this group that they were they were members of a of a natural inherently racist institution. He objected to the idea that his colleagues of color should get special treatment, should get time off, paid time off, and various other forms of reparations for their accidents of birth. And he objected, which, which to, I assume are illegal. Correct. Well, it's I mean, if it's public money. Yeah, I mean, that would be that would be um, a violation of the 14th Amendment, I guess. Uh, and then he objected to the fact that his office was seized and occupied by a black activist student group in 2020 and demanded various forms of reparative uh, racial initiatives from him and his office. Those were his offenses. And that's what led the university president and him objecting to that led the university president to say he was irresponsibly exercising his speech. This is why tenure exists. This is why conservatives have sort of begun to come to terms with its necessity. I remember coming up in 2004 when I was in college, conservatives hated the idea of tenure because it just allowed professors to say whatever they wanted to say and in a reckless and irresponsible manner. And they had no consequences as a result of their free speech. Well, look at the shoes on the other foot now. Who's the advocate for free speech today? Okay, there's a there's a, a an entirely different way to look at this, which is that uh, this is a good reason for tenure to be destroyed, because if it actually does not provide proper protection to somebody uh, who says something controversial or upsetting to the majority of people in an institution like Princeton, then it shouldn't exist at all. It has no purpose except to create. Um, a permanently employed aristocracy of of, of scholars. Um, tenure, as you say, the only reason for tenure to exist is to protect uncomfortable or difficult speech uh, from from persecution. Uh, that is clearly, you know, if if one of the two or three most important universities in American history no longer supports that, then tenure shouldn't exist anymore. And every professor in America should have to face the possibility of dealing with employment or lack of employment on an, in an open marketplace where they compete with younger people who come on board, who get PhDs, who have something else to say and all of that. I don't know what purpose tenure serves any longer if you can get fired for saying something bad. Now, and then it's even worse because, of course, this is a pretext and the pretext makes it even worse. It makes it even worse because it all all the pretext says is we'll figure out some way to get you. Don't worry. You know, did you ever you know, the famous line from the French Connection, did you ever pick your feet in Poughkeepsie? It's like, oh, yeah, you you lost a year's pay three years ago dealing with this issue. Don't worry. Uh, You know, you you took your punishment then. Okay, we're going to punish you some more. And we can because we don't live under, you know, constitutional rules of double jeopardy or anything like that. We can just do whatever we want. We'll rewrite our rules. You're you're under double secret probation. John, the little known causal to the Faber University, uh, you know, constitution that says that the that the dean can do anything he wants to to you. So enough with tenure, enough with America supporting these hedge funds that met, that that pretend to be educational institutions. Harvard's got $40 billion under investment. Really? Is that is that $40 billion? It's one of the largest hedge funds in America. And they are, you know, they are they are uh, nonprofit. They're a nonprofit and they have all this protection and blah, blah, blah. 
enough. enough. But isn't, isn't that a little like saying we should do away with the right to free speech because people aren't observing that right in practice? I mean, isn't it more valuable to fight for it? Why yeah, I don't think you get a marketplace of ideas. If you eliminate tenure, you get a, a series of people who are competing in this faddish marketplace to be the most zealous in pursuit of whatever the revolutionary idiom or maxim is of the moment. Yeah, but I mean, that doesn't. So fine. So again, what what do we care? Like, we're not university professors. My friends were university professors. I hope they all have tenure so that they can be protected. Now they're going to have to shut up and not say anything because they know that, the you know, people are going to comb through their emails looking for some reason to fire them. So they're they're through. And and what do we care? Let them all rot. That's what I'm saying. Because the ideological monoculture on campus has long term effects on the people who run the major institutions in this country, because if you have an ideal, we have currently an ideological monoculture on campus, these sorts of decisions by the most elite institutions like Princeton saying we will punish anyone, anyone who deviates from our extreme norm now, which is to say that everything is racist all the time, always. And you how dare you uh, speak against it? Those they are educating an entire generation of people who grow up to run the government and to run cultural institutions and to run businesses. And, and how are you going to reverse that? OK, well, it matters. So what? So 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 there are four professors at Princeton that survive. Who have, you know, uh, there's, you know, Robbie George and I don't know who else. Joshua Katz is now gone. So fantastic. So. There are 200 professors who march in ideological lockstep and four who don't. Now what? I mean, you're saying we need this because of the the ideological has won. The ideological monoculture has won and is dominating. And therefore, again, I'm going to ask again, why should we care? What's happened to Joshua Katz is an outrage. It is an outrage, not because he's being fired and losing his tenure, because I don't care about his tenure it's because he's being fired for expressing an opinion in a in an atmosphere in which we are supposed to in which free expression is supposed to be like the life's blood free inquiry is the life's blood of 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 academic work i gotta say pursuit yeah i hear an element of national conservatism in your sense of resignation that the institution just isn't worth saving so we should contribute to its destruction I'm not contributing to anything. There's nothing that I can do to make tenure go away or not go away. Exactly. I mean, it's an academic argument. Of course, it's an academic argument. But saying tenure is important because it's there to protect the kind of speech that prevents the ideological monoculture from festering is self-evidently untrue since the ideological monoculture has now dominant is now the dominant force in higher education. Okay, in the but there States. but there are other ways to fight back that don't say just just you know in despair turn away and just say oh it's never going to change. So look at how some some families and and male students fought back against the Title IX regime when it came to sexual assault on campus. It took many many years and many many lawsuits. But there were kids who successfully sued and won massive settlements from their universities because of the kangaroo courts and procedures they were put through and the presumption of of, uh, guilt that they were made to bear on campus as students. So that did then shift policies a little bit. So you you can actually sue some of these people into submission. You can there are other cultural pressures you can put on them. I mean, there are things that can be done. 
Um, but I, I mean, I, I agree. It, it, it's easy to despair. It has been this way for decades. But I think what's different about this situation is the it, it's so blatantly hypocritical in terms of what what the claims for tenure and open uh, inquiry are on campus and what the reality is that I, I just think, think more people blood, notice it. The blood is now in the water. Princeton has fired somebody That's true. for saying that Princeton is not a racist institution and has trumped up fake charges like a Stalinist like a perfect Stalinist regime, uh, you know, demanding confessionals, whatever, you know, and is now has done whatever the equivalent is of, of executing Joshua Katz. The blood is in the water. You think this stops here? You think there is any conservative professor with tenure in the United States who does not now have, have ice running through his veins? You're going to say anything? You're going to do anything? We have people who write for us. Most of them no longer, you know, most of the sorts of people who wrote for magazines like Commentary are no longer on campus. It's too dangerous. It's too dangerous for them. Once they, and people often said, I can do this once I get tenure. You think now once you get tenure, you can do it? You think the Black Students League isn't going to start searching, hacking your emails? You think that any any political contribution that you give to anybody as part of your free speech, or if you go want to leave and go work in a Republican administration, that you'll be allowed back on campus? They'll figure out some way to say you 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 can't take a leave and come back. But this uh, is the uh, end of conservatism on campus. Let 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 us not let us not mince words here. This is the uh, end uh, of conservatism on campus. Look, I I I, I will you know stand my my pessimism uh, against anyone's on any, any day. But I think the kinds of things that Christine's talking about in terms of fighting back are important here and are important options for people who are victims of this. I'm talking about the legal route because we're talking about a conspiracy that targets people with ideas and passions that they care about, about the good working order of uh, uh, the, the, the republic. These are exactly the kind of people who need to be warriors in this horrific fight. I mean, so, so they're, why not they not to they're not going to be. They're not going to be. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know about I'll, that either. It takes a it takes a, a 2014 dear colleague, 2011 dear colleague letter to get Betsy DeVos, but it takes a decade to get there. When Christine mentioned the kids who fought back against Title IX, that's because their lives were at stake. They were they were being accused of being rapists. Their their lives were ruined by false accusations. They had no choice because not to fight back would have been to basically allow their lives to be destroyed. This is the opposite. But the opposite plenty. here. But if you're a plenty. tenured professor with a guaranteed salary for the rest of your life, and you go and you start, you know, being warriors in this case with a with a twenty to forty percent possibility that you're going to get your head chopped off, you're not going to go into battle. People don't go into battle. I, think I mean, some, will. some do, but very they're, 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 they've. I mean, I mean, we're talking about the the good ones. I mean, the good as in the sort of morally good ones here. They do what they do because their commitment to these ideas, such as free speech. And there's, there's the Brett there's... Weinstein route where you can just self-radicalize and try to warrior yourself into a into irrelevance. 
But there's also students and grad students who are, are rabid careerists who want to get through these institutions and have a, uh, have a very lucrative job future uh, on the other end of them. And they are all not necessarily uh, really, really super woke. Now, they might play along. But if, if you're right, John, and the campus is, is gone and it's just going to increasingly be more radicalized and punishing of, of people who, who uh, don't agree, then that's going to start to affect students and professional level students, graduate students in different departments, business schools, medical schools, and it already actually is in some medical schools, other places. Those people have standing to sue and say, this monoculture, this punishing you know, uh, suppression of speech goes against everything that, that the school says it stands for. And also this university takes federal dollar, that takes federal money. And, I am, and that means that they, are, they okay. have to hold up some of those standards. Okay, you can that's defund one- that. Right. Yeah. That's one thing. Okay. That's one thing, which is the federal federal money require requires people to obey, you know, ha, that 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 constrains them in certain ways, right? That's why Hillsdale doesn't take any federal money. Um, but I want to go, I I mean, I I'm expressing despair and rage here, but in, in in this way. And I'm just thinking this through as a practical matter, having been in certain situations that reflect this. You're a person, you make $125,000 a year. You got three kids, you got a mortgage, okay? Uh, your kids are gonna have to go to college. If you, if you teach on a campus, by the way, and you don't lose your tenure, your kids go to college a lot cheaper than everybody else does. Little, little known fact about, about people at, you know, about university professors and these deals that universities make with each other to, to, to support the kids of faculty members. You're at real risk here. You lose your job, okay? And you're a philologist like Joshua Katz. It's not like you're going off to Wall Street and you know getting a job at a hedge fund or something like that. Like you, you, you're you study Greek or you, you know, you're a you're a medievalist. You know, you you what you you know about the Merovingians. I mean, um, and you are faced with a circumstance in which speech is being free speech is being crushed and your own ability to express yourself is under incredible pressure you know what else is under incredible pressure your bank account the way you have to pay your mortgage who's gonna you know how are you gonna send your kids to summer camp all of that you think that just being you know believing in certain things is going to protect you from the necessity of making sure that your life isn't ruined and you are not immiserated and destroyed by a regime like this, of course, you can't expect people to be brave. You can't expect people to be courageous. That's not how, that's not what courage is. If it were, everybody would be courageous. I mean, I'm just saying and, and what's more, and not doing it can be a form of courage. I mean, this is the weird part. Like saying, I can't do this because I have personal obligations that outweigh any kind of complicated philosophical objection I have to this, that, or the other thing. Maybe that takes courage. Maybe swallowing your, your you know convictions and not saying what you think you need to say because you have a sick parent whom you're supporting or a kid who's in a, you know, who's in an institution you need to support, that can also be a form of courage. So I, I just, human nature is very complicated. And that's one of the reasons why these kinds of 
shut, shutting people up techniques are so successful because they rely on the fact that most people are not in a position to fight back. Um, that's depressing, right? That was a really that, depressing. That's what they rely on. There. Yeah, they rely on that. They rely right. on the fact that there's people have yeah. too much at risk. Right. That's why these bureaucratic institutions are so powerful because in mass, they can do a lot to, to, to make sure an individual will not step up and have that fight. Um, I mean, I, I this is a, a weird digression. It's not really a digression, but it's sort of comparable. So in the early 2000s, I got to be friendly with... Uh, an actor you may all remember named Ron Silver, who played uh, Alan Dershowitz in Reversal of Fortune. And uh, I mean, he was, sort of, he was a, a famous character actor of the 80s and 90s. And Ron had been one of the creators of the Creative Coalition. He was a sort of a, a, a liberal, believed in free speech and was opposed to, you know, record labeling and this, that and the other thing. But 9-11 um, hit him very hard and other things hit him very hard. He had also been briefly uh, in the CIA uh, as a kid and had um, and and was not sort of anti-American, and uh, and he kind of moved to the right and in fact endorsed Bush in two thousand four at the at the Republican at his you know second convention. Uh, he's very smart, very I mean like uncommonly intelligent and thoughtful for an actor, I would say. And at some point I had breakfast with him and, um, and he said, oh man, I'm having, uh, you know, having a little bit of money. I, I mean, I got, I, I got to get back to work. You know, I know I've been doing all this. I've been doing a surrogacy and I'm doing this and doing that, but I got to get back to work because I need to make money. You know, my, send my kid to college, whatever. He died at six. He died a couple of years later, very young at 62 or something like that. And then I saw him like nine months later and he said, I, 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 I can't get work. I, I, I can't, I can't get work. Like he, it didn't occur to him that because he was becoming an activist in, in a controversial way in Hollywood, that it was actually going to have a negative impact on his career. And, um, you know, I, I, I commiserated with him. Then, as I say, he got sick. And so he, you know, he didn't, didn't go anywhere from there. Cause he, he, he died maybe a year, year and a half later. But the thing is that Joshua, it never occurred, I think, my view is it never occurred to Joshua Katz that he was going to get into trouble because of tenure. So he said what he had to say, what he said, and felt very comfortable and confident doing it, and then spent two years in this Kafkaesque hell and then got, got, got fired. I don't think people looking at what's gone on in Hollywood over the last 20 years feel are going to feel all, feel all that much different about um, about speaking up you know there are a couple of major actors who are basically very conservative who never say a word i'm not going to tell you who they are because uh and they they are so famous and so successful and so you know like that you would think that they would be protected from you know from the mob or from you know studios saying they don't want to work with them but it's not true and that's hollywood and this is the campus and i just, I, I don't know. I mean, we, we, we exist in a world in which to get a ticket into the upper middle class in the United States, you need to have a college degree. There's this whole, and now this, these institutions are actively doing evil 
and we're you know and we're 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 supporting them uh but noah let's go back to the media and the refusal to cover this the right way i mean this is not i don't think this is a one-day story and i don't think they get away with it i mean i know anemona hardakalis did a piece in the new york times which is mostly about how he you know they discovered new information and all of that but no one's gonna buy that i i think they will (laughs) i think they will they will read it and believe it because they want to believe it um otherwise it would have been who's the day who's the day let's figure out people who who are subscribers and readers of the new york times and the washington post and even the new the washington or wall street journal outside the editorial page uh, I'm not the average reader of these things. I, co- I I pick through it with a fine tooth comb and read multiple other reports to know that what I'm getting is contextualized beyond recognition. That's not the average news reader. The average news reader, if they even read this story on you know the B section page you know 22A, then if they even come across it, then they'll just survey what they seem to be an open and shut. A sexual harassment case, an unethical case, even though, you know, it's just one attorney saying this isn't harassment because these aren't unwarranted, you know, emails, blah, blah, blah. And they'll just move on from it because it seems like there's not much more context to it besides critics say, which is a throwaway paragraph that you get, you know, two thirds of the way down the story. You have to be in conservative media to be aware of this. So, but I, I do sympathize with and, and agree with the, uh, expressions of uh, my colleagues, Christine and Abe, who say that maybe this goes too far and maybe this isn't the case that goes too far. Maybe it's the next case that goes too far. But there is a cumulative effect here that threatens the institutions that they're a part of, which renders the, uh, the, the occupation of being a professor, of being an educator in any, any way, um, impossible to do effectively. So you have to resign yourself to this soul-crushing existence of drawing a paycheck while knowing you're failing in your calling. And maybe some will, most probably will, as you say, for very personal reasons about just simple self-preservation. But not everybody. There will be dissenters. There will be people who will rise up against this. And in part because it is such an, an assault on the very foundations of intellectual liberty and freedom in this country and in the uh, in the academy, to a degree that is intolerable, and there will be some who will not tolerate it. I don't know what that will manifest in, but it won't be universal acceptance of this new normal because it is not normal. Well, we know that there won't be right. We know that there are revolts. The thing is that this is a very weird world in which to stage a revolt. Almost all litigation involving misbehavior in higher education, almost all of it, very rare cases like this current Harvard affirmative action case, involve land-grant schools, public universities. Because they are, because they are public universities, the Constitution comes into play. Private institutions uh, don't. You know, people do not have constitutional writs at private institutions. They can do whatever they want. They can accept whom they want. They can reject whom they want. That's why this Harvard affirmative action case is so important, because the essential claim is that since Harvard takes federal dollars, 
it cannot violate the 14th Amendment as a as a as a as a federal contractor. And they are denying due process and equal protection under the law to people who apply by using discriminatory admission standards. And we'll see where that where that goes. The first the first, you know, the first court said Harvard can do what it wants. And now we're moving on to the Supreme Court and we'll see what they say. But most of these cases have involved public universities. And it is not at public universities as a result that the really worst stuff happens, to be frank. I mean, the idea that the president of Princeton, the home of the Institute for Advanced Study, you know, a, a place where, you know, Einstein and, and John Nash and people like that sort of wandered around writing things on, on blackboards and hallways because they were attempting to do breakthroughs in logic and reason and scientific analysis, that it should be unacceptable for a somebody to say, this group that infiltrated my office is a terrorist organization in an opinion piece on a website, you know, really? Like, I mean, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? I mean, it's, it, this is of interest to me in part because, I mean, it's of interest to me in general, but, you know, in, I don't know, two, a year ago, a year and a half ago, when, when, when my oldest was, was starting to look at schools and it was during COVID, so you couldn't get, go in anywhere, see anything, go anywhere. We drove from New York to Princeton to look around Princeton. She loved Princeton. I mean, she didn't see a class. She didn't see a dorm. She saw nothing. But, I mean, Princeton is a magnificent campus it is a magnificent town it's a beautiful town it's an hour and 15 minutes outside of new york you know it's like some kind of fantasy of where you would want to go to college and she ended up not applying there for various reasons but uh i mean she ended up doing early decisions somewhere else um but imagine the circumstance for somebody like me, had she gotten in, say she had done early action at Princeton and gotten in and she was going to Princeton, and then this thing with Joshua Katz happens. What do I do? What do I do in that circumstance? It's not, I'm not the one going to college. I'm the one who's going to pay for college. I'm not the one who's going. I mean, this is why I look at this and say that this entire, the corruption of this system is like insanely blatant. And it gets more corrupt the higher up you go, where in theory, it should be less corrupt, right? Princeton doesn't need to surrender to the mob. Princeton, Yale, and Harvard are the three most distinguished institutions of higher learning in the United States. They are centuries old. They can pick and choose who teaches at them, who goes there, what they are, what they preach, what they, and all this. And the terror, the terror that they are experiencing in relation to the mob is fascinating. Because they see, should be arrogant. Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say they. I think it's really fascinating to me because to, to compare to the campus culture wars of say the 1990s. I think a lot of the people in charge at Princeton, a lot of the administrators in particular, 
thought that the virtue signaling would be enough to satisfy the mob. They really thought that's why they put out those crazy statements about, you know, sort of, you know, rending their garments and claiming they're all racist and everything is racist. And we have to do all these things. They didn't actually intend to change much. They like so many in the elite, it was a signaling thing like, oh, yes, you know, message I care, you know, defund the police because, oh, police are terrible. They don't have to live with the circumstances. But on these Ivy League campuses, they have allowed these children who come in who actually take them at their word and say, no, now we have to punish someone because someone broke your rule and said that we aren't racist, but we know we are because you said we are. So punish them. And then they actually have a choice to make. And I think administrators, unfortunately, at our elite institutions are caving. They are to blame. The adults in the room are not being adults. We've known this for a while. But in, but at other schools, not as elite, sometimes they push back. Sometimes they say, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. University of Chicago put out a whole statement about free speech. So it is possible to resist the mob, at least a little bit. At Princeton, I mean, there's a sense in which I'm kind of, there's some schadenfreude here. It's like, yeah, you're getting your comeuppance because you said you'd do all this radical stuff, but you didn't mean it. And now the kids are holding you to account. They're coming. They're literally occupying your offices till you do what you say. So they brought it on themselves. Yes, but they could also then get rid of it. They could find, they could. They could. But they not only said they would do all these radical things, we're forgetting that the universities supplies the literature to the mobs. I mean, that's these these ideas come from academia. Yes. Well, it's we're talking about two different things here, the the campus culture for students and campus culture for professors. It's two different, two very distinct categories. You don't have a lot of recourse as a student who's maybe heterodox or even conservative in these institutions. You do keep your head down, you do do the work and you just get out. And hopefully you have the same ideas you did before. But if you did, you come out a much sharper character than any of the mediocrities that this orthodoxy produces because you are constantly fighting back against professors who who are have an adversarial relationship with you. And if you're gonna get a half decent grade, you really have to figure out how to make one hell of an argument. Uh, and that was my experience, and I think it actually serves quite, you know, quite well conservative students who emerge from these institutions with some sort of having having conflicted with at least one professor who was just preternaturally uh, disinclined to accept anything but a rock solid, airtight argument that they couldn't couldn't refute. So that does See, have I some advantages the, yeah. for the students. For pr- professors, it's an entirely different. Contract. Look, without question, and the truth is, like, you know, who 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 came out better? Again, I, I don't know how the you know the 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 world outside of conservative media would think about this, but who came out better out of those confrontations during the Atlantics and the Institute of Politics horrible disinformation conference at the University of Chicago? Conservative over students. these questions. <laughs> students at the Chicago Thinker yeah. who asked questions and then were called advocates and peddlers of disinformation, those kids are going to be fine. Those kids know who they are. They have, they have a certain type of countercultural institutional support. They're going to get out of school with a degree from the university of Chicago, go into conservative media or into politics. They're going to be fine. But if one of them wants to be a professor of classical philosophy he or she is not going to be fine. That life is over. For, there is no path. There is no path. They will not get a mentor who will help them shepherd their doctoral dissertation. They will not get a job anywhere outside of you know these 
rigorously conservative ideological institutions like Hillsdale or or the or that um, Catholic college started by the guy who founded Domino's, the name of which I can't remember, or a couple of other places. Ave Maria. Right. The only place that they can still go to some extent is law school and business school. But that's not the academy. I mean, you can go on from law school to be a legal academic and teach at other law schools. But I'm just saying there is not a person, if you want to write about, if you want to be an English major and love novels, there's no point in going and 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 view them from the perspective of great critics of the past, like F.R. Levis or Lionel Trilling or something like that. There's no path for you there either. Because you're supposed to you're supposed to focus on theory, not on not on literature. And if you want to be a political scientist who isn't a radical, you've got no path. If you want to be, as I say, a, a historian uh, who focuses on, say, great man theory or on you know or on, on large scale, you, there's no path. The end of this is the end of a non leftist academy in the United States because. That that is a slow generating thing. You have to go to four years of college, then you have to go get an MA, then you have to get a PhD, then you have to get a job, then you have to get another job, then you have to stand up for tenure. It's a 15-year process, you make no money. And if the end of the process, you are not in the club, you are not in the club. So no one is going in. But this is where the the I the discussion of new alternative institutions comes in. Um right. It's it certainly happened in media, right? I mean, right. Uh, you know, well, and we have we have the we have startups this University that, that, of Austin, right? right. This is the big like experiment. Of we 10, 12 years ago, when was that, Abe? I mean, it was long ago. We published this piece uh, called the uh, the new university uh, by a by a um, I can't remember. <laughs> Who wrote it? But uh, we, uh, David Galernter wrote one of these things. This guy yeah. wrote one of these. How to build a conservative, a non-liberal university from the yeah. ground up. But here's the problem with that: there are only two ways to do this, physically or whatever. One is, if you were to build one from scratch, the I I know people who did this in Israel. They built Shalem College from scratch. It was a whole different set of bureaucratic processes. But you know, it can take 15 years. And the amount of sunk cost to build an institution that kids would want to go to, like which has dorms and a library and, you know, has has, has dining halls and this and that and the other thing is, you know, around five to ten billion dollars. It's the university we need by Warren Treadgold. Warren Treadgold. It's quite a remarkable piece. It came out in 2009, was it? No, no, no. no. It was actually much later. Oh, was it? Okay. Oh, my God. But I I, I think I think he turned it into a book, too. Can right, I, can I, think, I, add, yeah, I think, yeah, go ahead. There is, there is a, there's still some silver lining to the existence of the, the campus craziness. And I mean, you do have also, I mean, you're right. It's a, it's a long-term investment, uh, both in time and money to build alternative institutions, but it is one worth making and people are trying to do it and they should keep doing it. Um, in the meantime, you have a whole culture of academic refugees. I'm one of them. There's lots of them. You go through, you get your PhD, you think this place is nuts. I can't, I'm not going to teach on a campus because I'll, I'll, this will be stifling and impossible given my politics. And you find other ways to do the work you want to do. And maybe it's not, and in some ways that opens new opportunities. Um, you can, there are plenty of independent scholars who can find ways to do that work. So it's not 
and and the refugee culture is is healthy for a democracy because it has a lot of people who are dissenters saying look this work is important i think of some of the great some of the great history books that have been written um uh, recently there you know look bill mcclay He's a tenured professor. He's of conservative sensibilities. He's written the best um, academic survey textbook that you'll ever read on American history. Like it's just a fantastic book. And that was a book that had to be published, not by a traditional uh, academic publisher, but it sold well, it's being read by kids. So there Mm -hmm. are there, that culture also can contribute to rebuilding some of this crazy stuff. Right. But, but, but this is the problem with the, the university is unique. This is a little like the 19, like uh, alternative media in the 1960s and 1970s. I mean, I I was involved in an effort to create an alternative media institution. That was the Washington Times. So it was done by a highly controversial, nearly illegitimate, you know, uh, cult. Um, And I don't know how a billion, a billion and a half dollars were lost because to do something like that, you have to have a plant, you have to get print, you have to get, you have to distribute it. You know, it was a full scale newspaper with a full scale and, you know, and, and the, um, you know, it, it never really got a chance to flourish in the right way because of its provenance and also because of the way that old media functioned. And now the barrier to entry is zero, right? It's like, uh, Substack costs nothing, right? You can, if you're Brett Weinstein, you probably make way more money now as a as a as a right a refugee than you did when you were a professor at the University of Washington, uh, you and your wife. Um, but you can't build like unless you can somehow take over. You know, you can sort of like buy Oberlin. <laughs> No, throw everybody out. Well, they're going to be broke. They have to pay that settlement right. to the bakery. Right. So they'll be but broke. I'm just saying like, you know, <laughs> can, you buy, can you buy other institutions? By the way, the Unification Church, the Moonies, who owned the who owned the, the Washington Times actually tried to do that. They bought the University of Bridgeport in Connecticut and they tried to create a conservative alternative institution. Um, I'm just saying like that challenge of what it is that a university is as an image to people, the the barrier to entry is just is just astoundingly well, high. So then you need more people on the conservative side of the aisle to do what I think a lot of uh, the left did effectively throughout the 20th century, infiltrate and co-opt the institution, right? Like get get more get people who understand that what they need to do is 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 staff administration roles, staff this, and conservatives tend not to do that. They tend to be more entrepreneurial, more risk taking. They're you know so they they do other things. They start businesses. They you know. You would actually. Well, what are we need talking about here? Effort. Creating alternative parallel institutions that are that, as a central mission statement, are to go to war with the conventional institutions that they dislike. That's go read the Long March. I mean, right. if you really, really That's want to replicate the, yeah. what they did, then yes, adopt. Yeah, their but tactic. the Long March again. The problem is you're talking about physical plant. I mean, I, I just keep going up, going, going over this and like, brands. But, These but are brands okay. now. Yeah, yeah. But just, just to shift a little bit from the idea of all alternate um, alternative institutions. I think the other idea here is I think we're discounting the, the long range potential for sea change in, in our culture and ideas. I've said it before, probably a few times at this point, I do think there's going to be a right wing 1960s of some mm-hmm. sort. Okay. And 
I agree. Those kids Mm -hmm. get on the on campuses and say, stop telling me I'm racist. Stop telling me I my I have my I have no future because I'm black. Stop wagging your finger in my face. Stop telling me what I can say, what I can buy, what I can do. And, and, And when they say it aggressively, as they did in the 1960s, it will be interesting to see how that shapes what's happening. Well, oh, they'll be called uh, terrorists because if it's right. anything like the 1960s, it will be a well, some of them might occasional, be occasional. Yeah. Yeah. OK, it will but coming with your occasional right. bouts of street violence. Uh, but that's why the that's you know, how do you know why the admissions processes at these schools are so insanely opaque and why we don't know why they choose whom they choose? You think they're not self-selecting to make sure that controversialists don't hit campus unless they're controversialists that they think they want? I mean, we don't know. You think somebody who applies and says, I'm a deacon at my, you know, I'm an elder in the Mormon church. You think you think that person doesn't go in a separate pot? How do we know? We don't know. I mean, the one thing that conservatives have tended to have until, until very recently is a respect for institutions, right? The Berkeley and respect for institutions, which is... You know, and and so, but now now that they're more inclined to be revolutionary, I, I don't know. I'm just saying. Well, we have in, res- yeah. we still have restore. There are plenty of conservatives, I think, more than than the burn it all down type revolutionary conservatives that, who want to restore the integrity of those institutions. That that's yeah. actually the middle path, right? I just wish I knew what that meant because you know, I I was a I was on a college campus 40 years ago. I graduated 40 years ago. This you know, uh, this month, actually, or next month. And, um, you know, I had to start a magazine because the because the uh, the school newspaper was inhospitable. I wrote a favorable review of The Deer Hunter, a movie that won the Oscar for Best Picture that year, wrote a favorable review. And the night that the that it was coming out, the editor of the paper spiked it because it said Vietnam, the movie depicted Vietnam as not being evil. And I, I, I knew enough to know I was like in my second or third week there that the, I, I, my presumption was I was going to go work on the Chicago Maroon, the student newspaper. I worked on the newspaper in high school. I was wanted to work. At, I had to start my own publication. It was very clear right then. Like I was spiked at night because I said something that the editor didn't like about a movie and what it said, which was accurately portrayed in which I had accurately described. Um, and I did not have a horrible time on campus at all. I mean, I, my magazine was once boycotted and we got, you know, people sometimes threw it in the garbage can, but whatever, it was fine. But I mean, that was 40 some odd years ago. Like this is two generations ago. Um, and it's way worse on the one, uh, way worse on now. So I published this very, you know, dry, highbrow magazine. Now you got these more incendiary kids at Chicago doing this publication, the Chicago Thinker. They were the ones who confronted this argle-bargle nonsense that Obama and David Axelrod and everybody was pet and Jeffrey Goldberg, you know, the infamous scandalous intellectually corrupt Jeffrey Goldberg was peddling at this preposterous conference in which, you know, disinformation was held to be anything that a conservative said. And, and, you know, uh, those kids are, those kids are doing a, a very different thing from what I did. And as I say, I think their future is fine. But the whole point of the University of Chicago is to make philosophers. 
I mean, you know, in part, that was the whole, that was its famous writ was that it was trying to prepare people to live the life of the mind. The life of the mind was the phrase at the University of Chicago. This is the opposite, right? This is shutting off the mind. You know, the closing of the American mind, as my professor Alan Bloom, you know, put it in the 1980s. The closing of the American mind wasn't, by the way, because of, you know, totalitarian leftism. It was because of, you know, America's silliness and refusal to grasp with, you know, the deepest of realities about humankind. Uh, so he was, he was, he was off there, but he was onto other stuff. Uh, do we have anything else to bring up uh, since we've been, I've been ranting for an hour. Um, Noah, what were we, what else were we going to talk about? I can't remember. It was remember. the long COVID study. Some... Okay. We we should, that's too, that, that needs its own, that needs its own focus. That's too, too. Uh, I'll, I'll mention one thing. Okay. Monkeypox. Oh my God. Joe Biden says monkeypox. We got to be worried about monkeypox. Uh, here it comes, the new the, the new thing that's going to replace COVID, monkeypox. How many people have monkeypox in the United States? Anybody know? Three. Now you get monkeypox from sex. The exchange of bodily, close exchange of bodily fluids. It's not COVID. This is not, I mean, I, I, it's like now the press is obsessed with making anything into COVID. I'm just like dominating the airwaves here. So Abe, you're just saying, Abe is smiling. Abe is thinking about how he's got to cancel his trip to Europe and that rave he was going to go to, right? Because we now know monkeypox emerged from people having crazy sex at raves in Europe. So, I mean, it's it's like a parody of what you would imagine a scary oh, virus. We've been on the hunt, you know, for, for a second COVID since, since the emergence of the first COVID. There were other scary bugs that were supposedly uh, uh, coming down the pike. Um, that that didn't quite materialize. The other thing about monkeypox is it's overwhelmingly mild, right? I mean, it, it can be uh, very serious, but most most people sort of get a fever and a rash or whatever it is. And, and the word they, pox is super scary. Yeah, it reminds people of smallpox, I think, and of yeah. This is why it dovetails with the long COVID study, which we can't do proper treatment for here, but we will tease it because we're the teasing long it COVID for tomorrow study because we're going to talk about long COVID. Even by people who are clear, quite clearly desperately sympathetic towards and supportive of the idea of the existence of long COVID. This one longitudinal study, the first of its kind and the only of its kind, to study this, uh, these ailments, um, concludes generally that its sufferers are also wrestling with uh, their own uh, issues with mental health, to put okay. it mildly. Stay tuned <laughs> as we will discuss this tomorrow. So for Abe Christina No, I'm John Pot Horitz. Keep the candle burning.